Welcome to Upfront the Podcast. I'm Katie Hannan. On the week Jerry the Monk Hutch escaped a conviction for the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel, we chat to the man responsible for running Ireland's most notorious prison. Eddie Mullins is the governor of Mountjoy Prison on Dublin's north side, and on this week's podcast, he chats to us about organised crime and addiction within the prison service, overcrowding, education and rehabilitation. Now, Eddie, I am sure that you were following that Jared Hutch trial with as much interest or maybe even more interest than most of us. Um, because, of course, what happens in the world of organised crime has a big impact on how prisons are organised. And I'm not sure if people really realise that. So I know you you can't comment on the verdict itself, but talk to me about how organised crime has impacted on, on the management of prison populations. Well, it, well the, first thing, the first thing I'd say, Katie, is that organised crime is not a new thing. Um, so, I mean, as far as I can remember, you know, right back when I joined the prison service, there was always an element of organised crime. Uh, certainly, it's become more sophisticated in recent years, and it's because there's an international perspective and dimension to it now. But we've always had organised crime, and we've always had you know, figures in the criminal world who have kind of generated and, and captured the... Uh, imagination of the of the public so we have become very experienced in uh, in dealing with we would call them factions and organized criminal groups and i suppose if you take mountjoy for example today we would have about 250 people who are on protection uh, for various reasons okay but i mean i suppose just to explain to people whatever the outcome of the uh the hutch trial you wouldn't be have had a new guest <laughs> in your prison because of that because I'm right in this. I'm sorry that Mountjoy is the Kenahan prison, if I can put it that way. And people associated with the Hutch um, group, that the, they would never they would never be sent to Mountjoy. So, uh, well, I, I, I dispute the idea that Mountjoy is the Kenahan prison. OK, so we have people from various uh, uh, criminal backgrounds in all of our prisons and we segregate them for a variety of reasons. So, for example, if you consider and um, you talked about that particular uh, gang, uh, I would say the, the, the feud that's going on in the, those two uh, particular gangs. You know, they will have visitors coming to the prison on a daily basis to visit their loved ones in prison. And it's important that, you know, public safety, visitor safety is observed. So we, we, we segregate prisoners based on a risk. So you would be correct in saying that one element is in one prison and another element is in another prison. But certainly would not, uh, I wouldn't label now Choi. A I appreciate that, Eddie. I appreciate that. But what I'm saying is that that if if you are if you are associated with the Kinahan gang, the prison you'll end up in is Mount Joy, and if you're associated with the Hutch gang, it's Wheatfield, isn't it? Yeah, and that's true. And I suppose the other aspect of it is that we have one very very large organisation and one smaller organisation, um, uh, so they're not, we'd say, equal in terms of size and in terms of magnitude. So. And in terms of, because obviously these are kind of dynamic relationships that are ongoing and, uh, you know, outside of prison. So presumably you have to keep a very close eye to what's happening outside the prison walls. Absolutely. And we would have a very uh, good working relationship with Angarda Shikhan in relation to intelligence, both in the community and intelligence in prison. And we would share a lot of intelligence and work closely to ensure that, you know, it's, it's, it's really all about safety and it's about safety public. And it's the safety of people, in our cases, people in prison, their staff and our and other prisoners. So we would work closely with the guards and uh, and that would apply right across the, the criminal world, not just specifically for those two particular uh, criminal gangs. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, organised crime right across the country and there's lots of relationships that 
the guards would be very familiar with and they would keep us abreast of. Okay, look, I want to talk to you a bit more about Montjoy prison itself in a moment. Um, but first, maybe find out a little bit more about yourself. Um, actually, why don't we start with an upfront question? Uh, give us a number between one and 20. Seven. Seven. Aha. My favourite upfront question. When, Eddie Mullins, was the last time that you cried? Oh, God. Katie, I'm a crier. I, I, I think I Are cried. You? Yes, I think I cried watching um, SOS DIY last night on the TV when there was uh, a young woman who had uh, suffered a stroke and she uh, and the community rallied together to rebuild her house. And yeah, I had a few tears. I would joke. Okay. I cry every day, I'd say. If the truth, you know. I did not expect you to say that. Uh, okay. Uh, where are you from yourself? So I'm from. I'm from Dublin. I'm from the south inner city and was raised in a place just off James Street. Family of eight siblings and my two parents. My mother passed away in 2016. My father is still alive. I would say hail and hearty, but he's struggling a bit, but he's 95. That's basically it. I went to James Street CBS, trained as a chef. Go back to the eight siblings first. I'm one of eight siblings myself. Do you think that coming from a family and where you come in a big family like that can shape you? Certainly, when I think back to my childhood, we had, uh, you know, with a family with very little in terms of finance money. We had, we had a, a very happy family, you know, for the most part. Like any family, we had plenty of our ups and downs. But I always remember, I remember telling somebody this recently, I can remember uh, people calling to the door, women usually calling to the door. Uh, and my mother would have nothing in terms of money, but she would always give them an item, maybe maybe a bag of sugar, maybe a bottle of milk, whatever it might be. And she always felt that we were very lucky, you know, by comparison to others in our community. So I always think, I think I certainly brought that value with me throughout my adulthood. And I'm very conscious of that. I'm very grateful for how my life has kind of uh, transpired. But I'm very mindful of the fact that, you know, it could have been me. I could be on the other side of the bars very, very easily. Um, so you trained as a chef. Yeah. Did you, you didn't? Did you not like it? I did. I, I suppose it's strange. I trained as a chef. I love cooking still. I um, uh, back in the early nineties, uh, earning very little money, I was going out with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. She suggested I. Her father was in the prison service. She suggested I join the prison service. She, I was called for an aptitude test, and I didn't turn up. And went home, and I told my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, that wasn't this wasn't for me. And she said, well, it's either. Get out of the chefing because I wasn't making no money or join something. So she phoned up the Civil Service Commission and said I missed the bus and they let me go and do it a second time. And <laughs> I suppose the rest is history then. So I was really a reluctant prison officer in many ways. Okay, let's go on to where you did end up uh, ultimately, Mountjoy. Talk to me about Mount. I think there's a huge fascination with the joy as, as, as it's known in terms of the kind of... Uh, you know, what life in the joy is like and, and the kind of, uh, the energy of the place, basically. Describe it to me. Well, you're right, it is a very, there's a huge fascination. And I suppose we have 11 prisons in the state, but the most recognisable one, that we shot of it out is Mount Joy. It, uh, I would say it's the most chaotic prison in many respects. It has always had an, a kind of an edge to it. Um, it's, uh, it's full of energy, full of, aggression, full of sadness, full of, you know, attention. Um, it, is, it has every emotion. Every day you'll witness every emotion at some stage in the day. 
Uh, it just is a very unique environment. Uh, it is a funny place to work because, you know, unpredictable. You, on a daily basis, you can, you can experience, uh, you know, the highs and lows uh, within an hour, really, in many respects. It is a sad place. Prisons are very sad. There's a disproportionate um, representation to people from poor backgrounds and from poverty, uh, chronic drug addiction. I mean, today, for example, 25% of the entire population of 801 are on a methanol maintenance program that would suggest that they are, you know, chronically addicted to the substance. Uh, 48% of the female population across the world in the Dokus here are on methanol maintenance program. Again, chronic addiction. When you when you say that, and I'd like to go back on this to some degree, um, this is something we're looking at on, on our own television upfront program this week. I mean, one in two women in the, in, in, in the DOCUS unit, one in four men in your prison addicted on methadone. I, it's hard to look at that and not think we have criminalised addiction here. That's, is that, that, that is what we have done as a state. You know, no question about it. It's a straight answer, Katie. But also, I mean, those statistics are what I would describe as the most chronically addicted people. The drug, the prevalence of drug use in prison is is well over 80 percent. And the drug of choice in prison is not the drug of choice in the community. So we've talked today about cocaine being at epidemic proportions in the community. In prison, it isn't. It's it's tablets, it's benzos, it's cannabis. It's cheaper, what we would call dirtier drugs. So we are definitely, and I mean, if you can afford to buy your cocaine at the weekend and go to work on Monday, you won't come to the attention of the of the, the, the guards or the law. But unfortunately, people who are chronically addicted and to support their habit may engage in criminal behavior, and that can be a variety of criminal behavior. We know that. You know, as I say, you can be a middle-class professional and enjoy your cocaine habit every weekend, and nobody will ever bother you. But... And, 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 and the gas thing about it is we talk about gangland. I mean, gangland does not thrive on the most marginalized people in society. Gangland thrives on middle class people who have the means to pay for drugs. So you would be, this obviously was an issue that was raised by Simon Harris, the Justice Minister, recently, you know, that there has to be a conversation around responsibility that if you're, uh, you know, the middle class people, people in those those places, who are think nothing of doing a few lines on a Friday night or a Saturday night, that that is actually contributing to the misery at the other end of that. No question about it, Katie. And not only it's not only contributing, it is probably the single biggest factor because the money that we're talking about is millions, right? As I say, the people that I work with here in the prison centre don't have millions. They certainly don't have the means to support the lifestyle of the wealthy drug barons and the wealthy, you know, the drug... The, the people who control the drug trade. So it's it's much more significant than just a contribution. It is the primary source of funding. And what happens is, I'll give you a typical example. You have an individual here who has a drug habit, and uh, whoever his supplier is will give him two options, buy the drugs or hold the drugs, and that individual, because of the drug habit, will be on the lowest end of the rung of the ladder, delivering drugs and, and moving around and put themselves in a position or her herself in a position where they will be arrested by the guardie and end up going through the criminal justice system and ending up. So the two people are the end user, who is Middle Ireland, as I would say, and the person who gets the benefit from the transaction. 
are almost untouchable. Whereas the poor unfortunate, in my view, in the middle, is the person who ends up. And I mean, if you walk down any of our streets and you see people who are, I would say, chronic drug users, it's very obvious. They, 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 they present in a chronic fashion. Right? They're simply pawns in this, uh, I suppose, working world of you know, the drugs trade and the drugs, uh, drugs industry. In terms of drugs in prison then, and managing that, I mean, to some degree, do you need drugs in prison to keep the peace? If there was some means to absolutely stop every drug entering the the, the gates of, of Longchoy prison tomorrow, you'd have a huge problem on your hands, wouldn't you? Well, we wouldn't really, Katie, because believe it or not, my experience, again, and I know I can only speak from my 33 years in the prison terrace, is that most of the individuals that I come across are really, really, really want to turn away from the drugs habit because it has destroyed their lives. Okay? So there might be short-term upheaval when we... And we, we lots of successes when we do uh, uncover contraband, we do uncover drugs, we take it out of the system, and there's a, there's a, there's a level of unease and tension. But I, it, it's not something that would concern me. I actually firmly believe that most of the people in here are under severe pressure because of their drug habit, because they owe money for drugs. So it would be much more conducive to rehabilitation and to supporting people if we could take the drugs out of prison. So it's a very, very... St- and people in the community often say, the hell do you get drugs into prison? The reality is they come in through a variety of ways, you know, and, we, and prisons are like small communities. There are people coming in, there are people who work in prisons, there are people who visit prisons, there are contractors, there are people who deliver uh, visitors, uh, drugs come in over the wall, you know, so there are so many ways of drugs coming in. And then once they're in there, is there an internal economy within the prison? There absolutely is, yeah. And I think, you know, uh, it's estimated, for example, that drugs are valued about five times street value in prison. So if you think about it, I was doing a little bit of research the other day, you can buy a tablet in the community, I think, for a euro, okay, where there are five euros in prison. So, and you can multiply that right across the, 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 the availability and spectrum of the drugs, you know, whenever it's available. So, yeah, there's no doubt about it. The, the currency is exaggerated in prison. And in terms of just the logistics of, do people have small amounts of cash with them in prison or is, are these debts paid outside the prison? Then I'm talking about the actual money changing hands. Uh, so prisoners don't have cash. Drugs are paid for in the community. From time to time, prisoners would try to, we'd say, transfer money to another prisoner for a legitimate reason. But we don't, we've kind of, we've really eliminated that now. So the difficulty now is really shifting belt onto families in the community who have to pay for the drug habit. I'll give you an example, Katie. I, I, um, I took a phone call recently from a lady uh, from part of the city here. Uh, her son had been assaulted here in the prison and she was really agitated about this. And so the phone call, the initial focus was why we hadn't told her he was assaulted. And uh, when we got into that conversation, I said, look, you know, he's a grown man and his, the, the assault didn't result in serious injuries and as you know for GDPR and for privacy reasons we wouldn't inform family unless it was an extremely serious situation and when that conversation finished I asked her then about you know was, had she had any idea why she thought he was assaulted and she said he was assaulted because he owed six about six grand I think it was from drugs she said that she was bringing his children or grandchildren to school and a girl approached her and said um, that your son had been assaulted in the exercise yard, and if she didn't pay the, the debt, he would be killed the next time. So she and her daughters went to a money lender, 
borrowed the money, paid off the drug deal. And she explained to me that she was paying herself and her daughters used to meet the money lender. I think she did every Wednesday, which was probably social welfare day. And then I suppose the two really sad parts about this, and this is not a, a, a rare uh, case, this is very common. The two sad parts, she said to me, she'd stop bringing the grandson to school because she was afraid that he or them might be attacked at school. And, and, and I remember saying to her, you know, how were you coping with this? And she said, when I wake up in the morning, I light up a bag of doing a cigarette. And she said, for a minute, I think my life is normal. And then I realized how hopeless it is. It is unbelievable the impact it has on people and families. And we think, you know, we think of 801 prisoners in Mount Joy today. You can actually add the impact that has it, it's on a, it's 8,000 people. So families of 10, 12, 15 people are all impacted both. Yeah, very, very sad. As you say, that just sense of being trapped. Yeah. Uh, and having no way out. And no way out. Is, and, um, and, and such fear and intimidation that, like, you know, because I'm, I'm a member of a couple of uh, boards in the community and, and police and task force and various things. And, and there's lots of support from my guards and leadership on it for people, you know, who are suffering with drug related intimidation. But it's the absolute fear of going near the guardy talk about this. And that's why it's such a complex and, and complicated issue to deal with because. You know, the people that control this industry rule it with an iron fist. Just one thing you mentioned there as we got into this was the uh, amount of prisoner-on-prisoner violence that you have to deal with. There's always going to be prisons are high-octane. High-octane, you have, you know, you have 801 men uh, in an environment. It's a, it's an unnatural environment in many ways to have so many men incarcerated together. So there will always be energy, there will always be uh, aggression, there will always be conflict. So that's part of the nature of prisons in many respects. The protection issue has become a challenge because, as I say, we've 250 people now who have to be kept segregated. And this is usually by their own admission. So they will come in and tell us when we interview them, they say, look, I'm in dispute with such and such a body. I can't go here. I can't go there. And then we assign them to groups in the prison where they are safe and we're satisfied that the risk to them is, is minimized. But yeah. Prisoner and prisoner violence is always going to be a feature in prison. There's no question about it. Okay. Can I do another upfront question with you? I will go 12 this time. What is the most expensive thing you've ever bought apart from your home, I suppose, if you own it? I'd say my, a car has always been the most expensive thing I've ever bought. But I've always bought it on the never, never, Katie. So I couldn't say I've ever, uh, I'm not, I don't have a big uh, lavish lifestyle Um so I can't think of anything. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I like the nice suits. So I bought a couple of suits from Brown Thomas in the sale. Uh, well, always in the sale. Okay, anyway. okay. Talk to me, and you kind of touched on it there as you were talking about the um, the tensions that can can arise when you've got over eight hundred prisoners in in that you know that kind of an environment. But of course, you shouldn't have that many prisoners in Mountjoy. And this is something that you're very exercised about. Yeah, and to be honest with you, Katie, the biggest challenge facing the organisation in the prison service at the moment is overcrowding. Uh, we have uh, 62 people on mattresses in the prison today. Uh, about two weeks ago, we had 91. The reality is the court service is very active. The guards are very active. So the prison population is predicted to rise by about another 600 between now and the end of the year. And we don't have accommodation. Uh, we, we, we always accommodate people because we're obliged to do so, but it will mean that more and more prisoners will be sharing cells. We have put mattresses in, but we didn't want to put mattresses. And, and that, again, adds to the tension. It also impacts on our ability to deliver 
rehabilitative services to prisoners. So our priority switches from uh, a support to security. You know, it, it, it's a significant challenge. It's, as I say, drugs, mental health issues, and, and overcrowding are the three major challenges facing the organisation now. Explain to me, though, because I think people might not appreciate what we're, when we talk about doubling up or overcrowding, like what kind of a space you're asking people to share and what kind of times are, you know, how much time are they spending in that in that space? Yeah, so so the cells here in Mount Joy are, are single cell accommodation. So there's a bed, a toilet and a washout basin and maybe uh, the likes of a chair. And and that's really it. quite small, about 10 foot by 12, maybe 12 by 12, that kind of size. I, I, so when you put an extra mattress in on that, you put the mattress inside the door of the cell, but you still have the, the challenge of people spending time using the same toilet. Uh, you know, their personal space is really, really restricted. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know it's, a, it's a funny conversation because, you know, I've had it with people and say, well, look, you know, we have chronic homelessness crisis and we have chronic crisis in the community. And absolutely we have, but it isn't a race to the bottom. So, you know, because of those, you know, really difficult situations in the community, that shouldn't really... Uh, any sort of a justification for, uh, we'll say, facilities in prison to be watered down or treatment of prisoners to be anyway downgraded. And you know, we are as an organisation very, very conscious of the um, the impact that has on people's mental health. So you you asked about out of cell time, but out of cell time is roughly six and a half hours a day. But again, that is contingent on having enough staff to ensure that prisoners can be in safe. You know, in my view. One of our, uh, I suppose, leverage our levers here in the court system and, and, and our policy of sending people to prison, for example, for short term, for short sentences. Uh, I think we really have to look at alternatives to prison. I know last year I spent a day with uh, an organization called Restorative Justice Services, and they had a couple of them, individuals who um, were going to the court system and the judge had assigned them to restore the business services to see was there an alternative. And I, I remember sitting on two cases, two young men who had been both charged with public order offences, fairly, uh, you know, in your face type of activity with guards and the guard and the individual engaged in the, in the restorative practice process. And it certainly seemed to me as an observer to be a really good way of looking at somebody paying, uh, you know, first of all, realising that the behaviour has an impact on somebody else, but also paying away, paying their debt to society in a different way. Like these two individuals were both participating in training courses. Both of them had two young children. So when you send, if they had, if they had, and I'm not sure what final outcome was, but if they end up in prison, has a huge impact on their children. Like one in every two people in prison has had a relation in prison. Well, that's the and that's the reality of imprisonment. So one of the Primary reasons people end up in crime is because of the example they've seen from parents. And if we can break that cycle, we will actually see a really, you know, a positive outcome for society. No doubt about that. But on that then, I mean, just again, remind people of the profile of the prison population as it stands. Because it is very, very stark when you when you actually look at it. I mean, there there aren't that many bankers behind the walls of your prison. So there, there, there are a few statistics that say... Uh, as I said to you, about 70%, at least 70% of the prisoner population have drug use or addiction issues. 70% have mental health issues. 80% never did a leave insert. 
about 80% finish school before the age of 15. Uh, and they, about 98% of the prisoner population, and we could probably say, because of, we say, sex offender population, if you take that out of it, 100% of the prisoner population come from communities of disadvantage. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And the majority of people in prison are people who have come from poverty, from deprivation, from marginalization, and, and a lack of opportunities. And, and again, we'll go back to that then. The recidivism rates are shocking, really. You know, they're, they're, a, very, they're a very poor reflection on, on our system. As I said, people have an expectation that sending a person to prison will be the, the solution and will, for want of a better word, in, 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 we say in inverted commas, fix that person. But the reality is, it, society is absolutely letting them down. It's such a complex um, problem. There's no one simple solution to it. But recidivism, particularly in the, between the ages of 20 and 25, is, is huge. Um, because at that age, people are, are more impressionable and they probably have less uh, obligations. I'm just looking at the figures here. They really are like so stark. 83% of uh, prisoners who are under 21 uh, linked to reoffending incidents within three years of release. And again, it drops way down then if you're over 50 down to 30%. But more than, more than six in 10 people will come out and will be back. We'll, 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 you'll see them again within three years. What, what do you think should be, is the primary purpose of? Now, as somebody who has been at this, at the cold face of this for um, how many years now? 33 years. What's the point of prison, in your view? Well, that's a very good question. I suppose it depends on where you come from in society. People will see prison as, as a, you know, as a, a, a means of punishment, and others will see it as a as a means of rehabilitation. I think it's somewhere in between. There are certain significant amount of people in prison who should be in prison, who need to be in prison, who have been quite uh, uh, controlling and manipulative, and they have no interest in rehabilitation. So they come in here, they serve their sentence, and then they go back out and resume their criminal lifestyle, and they make money out. And that's fine. Prison serves that portion of people very well. They're detained. We have a good, you know, we have a good um, record on security. We have a good record on, on on keeping people safely and securely in custody. But there's also a very big, and I would say the majority of people in prison who are in prison because of circumstances. Because as I said, and I know I'm sound like a broken record here because of poverty, because of addiction, and all of those things. And prison is not the right place for them because, with, despite our, our best efforts, and we are, as a service, very committed to trying to support people. You know, I, I see that from the top down in terms of conversations, and it's always about trying to be innovative and try to support people on their journey out of uh, uh, criminal behaviour. But the reality is, and I've said this, and this again, probably said this too many times, but if you, I trained as a chef when I went to catering school. Doctors trained as, as doctors to go to medical school. You went to journalist school, I'm sure, Katie. And criminals go to prison because prison is a school for criminal behaviour. Prison is, is not the right place for everybody. And I think we really, really need to be very brave and be, be courageous, particularly the court services. Well, then do we go right back to the start of our conversation here and we talk about drugs and, and uh, our attitude towards people criminalising addiction. There is obviously the Citizens' Assemblies underway now and one of the proposals on the table is there's a couple of legalising drugs altogether or I suppose the lower tier of that is decriminalising um, drug use. Well, yeah, so I think, I think decriminalising drug use is something that 
I certainly think we have to go down that route because I definitely think for the people that I do, okay, for the most part, and I'm talk I'm not talking about our significant uh, prisoners, I'm talking about the average Joe who ends up in prison for 12 months or 18 months, possession of an intent to supply. And possession possession intent to supply is a very broad statement. Because in a lot of cases the individual has the drugs on him and part of the day he can keep half of them and he sells the other half and goes back to the drug dealer. And if and you look, as I say, you look around our streets and you look at people who are chronically addicted. Right? If they had a system of accessing the methadone or whatever drugs or, or the supports to the HSE and to the community support agencies, they would certainly be better um, served in sending them up into Mount Joe prison and then releasing them and then looking for, for example, uh, supports in our addiction services across the state uh, to try and, and, and break that cycle. So I think we need to take imprisonment out of the equation for an awful lot of, uh, of the people who, who, certainly who I deal with, because they're not making serious money out of drugs. Before I let you go, Eddie, one last upfront okay. question. Oh, um, 17. Tell me something you miss about someone you've lost. Oh, God. I would say I miss the warmth of my mother. My mother was... Um, she never, you know, eight children. No, and I know it's a really cliche. But she had, well, she had one favorite. Like my, my second eldest son, a brother, was always our favorite. We used to slag him about that. But she just had a, a way of um, of making everybody feel special, and and even grandkids. Like she just had that warmth about her, and uh, yeah, I miss that. And that was Eddie Mullins. And I know the internet connection did wobble a little there, but I think you'll all agree it was well worth sticking with it. Subscribe now to get new episodes on your feed when they're published and get in touch if there's someone you'd like to hear featured. On Twitter, we're at RTE Upfront or send us a WhatsApp message to 087 677 1000. Talk to you next week.